0: I have a goal of being successful in this, and I know I have to do
1: what it takes to make that happen. That's the voice of Scott Gocher, owner of Clever Grain, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Scott Gocher, owner of the Southern Oregon-based furniture company Clever Grain. Scott started working in the world of furniture when he was just six years old, but after many years of building, he left the industry and pursued another profession but being removed from building furniture, reignited his passion for it, and he found his way back in the form of his own company. Pulling from his experiences in many creative fields, Scott approaches his pieces not as purely functional pieces, but as pieces of art that people use in their daily life. Follow along as we talk about coming back to the furniture industry, how to use social media to reach clients, the balance of self-doubt in the creative world, and much more. Scott and I cover a lot in this episode, so let's get right into it and hear about his journey in his own words.
0: Yeah, mine's kind of a weird story. I never planned on having a furniture business. It's just kind of a series of events that made that happen. I started working at a, a pretty early age, um, maybe six, seven years old, and used to hang out with my uncle a lot who was a handyman and had a little wood shop and I got uh, you know interested in the tools and things that he was doing. And so he started showing me how to use a uh, hammer and chisel. And the very first thing I did is I was uh, roughly six, seven years old, like I said, and I carved my name into a block of wood with a hammer and chisel. And it just kind of went from there. And I used to to help him a bunch. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I built my first coffee table as a Christmas present for my mom, and she still has that one today. As a matter of fact, she actually uh, texted me yesterday and asked if I'd be interested in refinishing it, <laughs> which is kind of cool. And I took wood shop all throughout uh, junior high and high school. I was in the wood shop every single day. I you know took it. Uh, Uh, multiple classes for it, uh, as well as um, all the the trades. So autos, metals, uh, computer drafting, interior design and architecture type things, Um, and even had uh, took night classes for woodshop. Ended up being like a um, a teacher's aide. And in my junior year of high school, I went and competed in a state cabinet making competition. Took third place in that, and it was a bunch of different high schools from all over Oregon. And that's when Schools had more of those type of programs. My senior year, I built a fully working electric guitar as my senior project, um, which was a pretty fun build. I've always wanted to build another one since then. I don't have that guitar anymore. And after high school, I worked for a couple different cabinet shops. Uh, started out just sweeping floors and then installing hardware and then doing cabinet and deliveries. And then it went on to sanding and then actually building doors and drawers and the cabinet boxes and worked in the finish room, spraying cabinets and things like that. And then I did some other trade type jobs, uh, framing, I did uh, some masonry, just learned as much as I can um, working with my hands and worked for a mill after that for about four years, Uh, got out of that and uh, got into a career with the state of Oregon. And I worked in social services for 10 years. That wasn't my ideal thing. It just kind of happened like that. And while I was working for the state, I continued, I always, I've always had some sort of side gig as an adult. So while I was working for the state, I had a couple different business ventures. Um, I uh, co-owned and managed a graphic design vehicle wrap shop um, where people would come in. We'd print full vehicle wraps and install them and print stickers and T-shirts and signs and things like that. Ended up moving away from that business and uh, I've always kind of been an artist as well. Um, So I started, you know, drawing and painting a lot and then that moved into Painting full scale murals for businesses around town. And I did a lot of like custom portrait work, um, commissions for people as like wedding gifts and things like that. And uh, tried my hand at being a full time artist for a little while, back down from my career down to part time. And it's just really hard to make uh, a living doing art. Um, and furniture, you know, woodworking is kind of another form of art. And uh, when we bought our first home in, 2017, you know, like most other woodworkers, how they get started is, you know, they buy a home and want to build their own furniture, fill it with their own furniture. So that's kind of the path that got me back into woodworking, started collecting tools and just slowly getting back into it with the minimal amount of tools that I had. People started to kind of catch on and appreciate what I was doing. And before I knew it, I was getting orders and then I was getting busy during the Christmas seasons. And so I just kept expanding, getting more tools. So I ended up establishing Clever Grain in 2018 as a business because you know it wasn't a plan really to make it a full-time thing. Um, but I did, you know, want to be smart about it. And if I was buying all these tools, so I can establish a business and then boom, I have write-offs, which was helpful. It just kind of, kind of took off from there. Started dabbling in, uh, in epoxy because as a, having a background as an artist, I really like playing with colors and being, uh, being creative with things, which is kind of like the, the reason behind, uh, the business name clever green is I wanted to come up with clever ways of doing things. Cause it's really hard to create things that are original, but you can a lot of times figure out a creative spin on something and to make it a little more original or unique or your own by doing those things. It's like, you know, every, everybody's made a charcuterie board. Um, but I feel like I've come up with some different ways to have original designs on a charcuterie board, um, and cutting boards and things like that. Um, so in, January of 2021, um, I was just really tired of my job. It was in the middle of the COVID stuff. I was working from home and I was just miserable. Um, I feel like people have a shelf life in that type of work, working in social services. And I was just at the end of mine and my wife and I talked and I was getting enough orders and couldn't stay caught up. And I was working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week between the, the two things, just trying to, trying to stay caught up. And I was getting burnout and, and we talked about it and just like, you know, let's, let's give this a go and see what happens and did it right. Put in my two weeks notice. And that way, you know, if it didn't work out, I could always go back and
1: haven't looked back since. Your story, when you started it and you were taking these classes and you were learning from family and Mm -hmm. you really seemed like you were going down that furniture making path and then you took a hard left and you went totally different. And I understand that it is hard to make a living as a furniture maker, as Mm -hmm. an artist, like you said. But A lot of people have that job and dream of doing furniture, building furniture, but you had been building furniture and then you got out of it. Was it that you had been doing it for so long and you felt a little burnt out from it or did you just see a better business decision working outside of furniture? Well, When I got out of it, um, it was,
0: I was more in the the cabinet side of things and I didn't really enjoy building cabinets and I still don't, I, I I don't like building boxes. It's, it's boring. No offense to anybody that actually, you know, makes cabinets. (laughs) It's definitely a skill, but it's times were a lot different back then. So this was, you know, 2005, 2006, there wasn't a whole lot of social media out there. There wasn't, um, I didn't have that idea in my mind that I could do this for myself. It was just, I worked for someone else and I had this passion for woodworking, but didn't really know what to do with it. And that's why I went into that, that field of, you know, cabinetry is, you know, it's, it was something I was uh, good at and something I enjoyed doing, but society tells us that we need to grow up and get a good job and have good benefits and buy the house and have the family and that sort of thing. So You know, that's um, working for, for the state was kind of that, you know, that safe job. Like, you know, everybody tells you, oh, that's a, that's a good job. You know, you get good benefits, you get good pay, that sort of thing. Like that's a career. And I've always hated that word career, by the way.
1: (laughs) The idea of starting your furniture business, even though you were working in furniture before, wasn't really at the forefront of your mind, but Mm -hmm but you did work in all those different shops and you worked with people who had furniture businesses. So that part of it, the business side of it must have rubbed off a little bit on you because even though you didn't think of what you were doing as going to be a full-time furniture job, you still got the name established. You still made it a business so you could Start writing off your tools, and I'm sure there were other things that you put into place before you made that jump. So what were some of the things that you were doing while you were doing it part time, getting yourself ready just in case you did want to go full time?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So like a lot of other people, like I said before, when, um, when people kind of get into wordworking, it's a, it's a hobbyist thing. So when I, when I very first, when we bought our house and I started collecting tools and making things, it, it was more of an outlet hobby at that point. I had never planned on selling anything. But it's just, you know, after starting to make them some things and posting them on, on social media and starting, you know, having friends and family uh, request that I make them some things too, and they would pay for it. Um, that's when the idea kind of clicked that, you know, maybe this is something that I could do um, and actually make money with. And at that point, it was just, you know, like I could make money as a side hustle and make money to buy more tools and and to make the other things that I want to make uh, not necessarily as a business but it was when that year came around and Christmas time hit and then I just I didn't even market it I started getting a lot of requests for things because people had seen what I was making and that's I think that's really when it clicked that you know, maybe I could do this as a as a business, and that's when I started to to really um, sit down and establish a business name. And I have a little bit of a background in graphic design. Like I said, I kind of managed that uh, vehicle wrap shop, and so I've done freelance graphic design on the side, uh, another side hustle thing for years. So I have a process when I would do jobs for other people of kind of like creating a brand and. So I did that for myself. I sat down and started writing out different names of what I could choose as a business. And once I had compiled a list of names, I... Got on Google Domains and to check if the domain was available because for me that's a big thing. You want to have clean everything the same name as far as your you know your email, your website domain, your business name, your social media. Every everything um, has to be the same, otherwise it can get really messy.
1: So that's when it really started to become a business. With your graphic design background, working for Mm -hmm. other clients, when you did this for yourself, when you sat down. And start to think out your name and what was going to be a part of this. I know that when people decide on their name, in my mind, I see this as a real big line in the sand that once you make a name for yourself, once you draw that line and step over it, you're in a new territory. It's not just an idea. hmm it's actually a business and it becomes that and you put it out into the world. And yes, there is that amount of work that you need to do to actually make it into a functioning business. But once you pick that name, you're making a stand and saying, this is who I am. So Mm -hmm. when you did it, what were some of the things that you went through to pick that name, to pick that design, to make sure it reflected back on, what you wanted to put out into the world yeah absolutely my process that i have and this is kind of like a process that i would do
0: with uh clients that i designed logos and things like that for is you know i would i would come up with like a list of questions for example like first and last name um a color palette and just some ideas of what their, what their business is about. So for, for mine, you know, obviously woodworking in my logo, I wanted to include something that made it clear that it was woodworking. And in choosing a, a name, I'm not big on using my actual name in a business, uh, first and last name. I know pe- some people have had a lot of success with that. But for me, in my opinion, it, it looks more professional when you have some sort of other name that is not your physical first and last name. I wish I could recall some of the names that I had written down before I found Clever Grain. But being an artist, um, pop culture has been a big influence for me in, in artwork and things like that. I used to do a lot of fan art. And I don't know how I came up with the name Clever Grain, um, but it's obviously a, a spin on Jurassic Park and that whole like clever girl with the raptor and all that. So I kind of started toying with that idea and came up with my logo, which is definitely not a copyright infringement at all. And, and I get that question all the time too, uh, when I, cause I have all my own t-shirts and hoodies and hats and stuff like that. And people will see me wearing it and they go, hey, isn't that like Jurassic Park? And I just pretend like I have no idea what they're talking about. Like, like it's what? I'd never heard of it. It's fun to mess with people like that. But once I settled on the name Clevergrain, I went through and made sure there was a domain available. Okay, yes, there was. And then I would check social media um all social media so um once i established that yes that name is available on social media i started getting everything so i put like placeholders in so i created an instagram account an etsy page and um, a twitter even though i don't use it and a pinterest even though i don't use that just to have like a placeholder for the name and bought the domain which is only like 12 bucks you know so that i could lock all that down that nobody else was going to take that name. And then for the next several months, as I had time, go through and build my website and set up the social media and do all my graphics and things like that and so the logo that i have now is, is actually my original logo but it's not the original logo that i went with at first i got in my own head a little bit um you know working as a in a business or a, a self-employed person an artist there's a lot of self-doubt that happens so i thought you know people are going to think this logo is stupid it's it's a stupid logo it's a cool name it's a stupid logo so i ended up making a different logo that was more of the traditional like woodworking branded logo and Um, it was kind of like a safe move and, um, I used that one for about two years. Um, and the name and the logo is just like, it didn't really fit. Like people didn't get it. And so I ended up kind of rebranding and went back to my original logo idea. And that's when business for me just blew up. Everybody absolutely loves that logo. I get so many compliments. It's, you know, it's a super clever logo. It's, you know, great idea. People love Jurassic park,
1: you know, all that kind of thing. When you have a furniture company, when you have your own company, yes, Mm -hmm. the work that you put out needs to speak for itself. It needs to be able to bring clients in, but also the logo and also the name and also the website and also how you put yourself out there. With your background as a graphic designer and an artist and a furniture maker, you had all of those things already that you could bring to the table. And your website, it's very clean. It has great pictures, it's easy to navigate around and, (laughs) and it shows what you do in the best light. Another thing that I really like is that we all know that words have meaning and the way you describe things have meaning. And people always focus on the pictures and the visuals and making those as great as possible. But you not only have great pictures, but you also have great descriptions and great write-ups. Instead of saying cutting boards or serving boards or game boards, you say functional art and you take that to the next level. So when you're planning out how to design your website, what you want on there, how you want that website to speak to your clients, what goes through your mind in that decision process? To me, building a business
0: and running a business is, is more than just making those items, right? It's, it's more than just building furniture. There's a whole lot of background that people don't always think about. Um, and these things are really important. You want your products to, to sell themselves. Um, and I want to do as little work as possible, to, to sell those things. I want people, I want the products to sell themselves. Like you said, um, so like answering questions upfront for somebody. So they don't have those questions is really important. you have something that you've made and you take pictures of it and you put it on your website, you want to be descriptive as possible. Listing sizes, the materials used and wording it in a way like, you know, I work with a lot of olive wood. I don't just say olive wood. I say this is ancient olive wood that's imported from Turkey. And people are like, "Wow, that's crazy!" You know, I, I like to, when possible, list the, list where it's from. Wood has a story. All these materials that we use have a have a story and a place that they come from. You know, some some uh, pieces that I have, some wood that I have, I I can I can list the exact area that it came from. You know, this is from a a down tree that was salvaged in Applegate, Oregon. That sort of thing. So. Telling a story for it, and it, it helps people uh, appreciate the piece more. If someone uh, pays me to do a dining table. It's not just a dining table. It comes with a story, and that's why you know I'll list, I'll put some verbiage in some of my um, listings and things like that that say, you know, this this is sure to be a conversation piece, something like that, you know, because it's you you have a dinner party and people are like, oh wow, this is a this is an amazing table. Where would you get this? and they say oh this is from a local business called Clever Green and he told me that he got this this slab from such and such place and these are the colors used and you know he has his own local fabricator do that and it's all handmade locally and all this kind of stuff it's not just a dining table it's you know it's supporting a family business and people want to support family businesses they want to buy products made in the US and they want to know that you know their money is going to something good more than just purchasing on a, on Amazon or IKEA or something like that.
1: Making your pieces stand out with their story is mm-hmm. is just what people want. They want something original. They want something that is their own and that is what custom building and custom furniture is based on. Mm-hmm. You said in the beginning that you really look to make pieces that are different than what's out there. And that is an admirable way to go about building things. But it's also very, very hard because there's a lot of people building things. And especially with social media and everything out there, it's very, very hard to be original. So how do you come up with your designs how do you make sure that they are original or at least original enough that you feel good putting them out there that they haven't been seen before
0: well i want to be clear that not everything i do is completely original um you know i i I try to take a creative spin on existing ideas and everything like that but if i do something that i know that i got inspiration from someone else i always make sure to give that person credit and that's a, that's a big thing in the woodworking community is to, to make sure you give credit where credit's due that way, you know, it doesn't feel like you're stealing someone else's idea. You know, you're, you're working with them and helping to promote them and their idea and the, you know, their spin on how they did things. But as far as like my original ideas and designs, um, a lot of the times they just kind of come to me or get influenced by another design or things like that. I have kind of a target market that I want to go after. Right. So a lot of the things that I do are, are custom made. They are not cheap. They are expensive. I can't even afford half the stuff that I make, but I have a, I have a target market. And I think my, my prices reflect that too. It's good to, you know, kind of determine that in the beginning, like what, figure out what your market is and pricing your items and and things like that. So my target market is definitely more of the, the high end, um, people that you know have money to spend on these these kind of things and being able to I, i'm I'm a bit of a perfectionist so making everything look as clean as possible when it, it comes to the item itself to the photography to the staging and everything like that I'm I'm really trying to appeal to a very specific market and coming up with those ideas it's you know it's a lot of times we get ideas and we like I said before there's a lot of self-doubt that happens you know I've I've had ideas where you know I, um, for example I did this uh, battleship serving board you know I cast these actual battleship game pieces in epoxy and did this whole serving board thing and uh, I tossed that idea around for a while and went back and forth on it. I tried it at one point and it didn't go well, so I scrapped it and then left it for a while. and. And then, you know, I told myself, it's a dumb idea. It's not going to sell because it wasn't for a customer or anything like that specifically. It's just an idea that I had. And then I came back around to it and I'm like, you know, I I like this idea. It doesn't matter. You know, I want to try it. I want to do it for me. I don't care if it sells. Um, So I went for it and and that thing I priced that really high too, like really high and it sold within a week. It was crazy, Um, I think. People appreciate the level of creativity that go into the things that you make, and the level of skill that it takes to do that. And especially if you're able to really make those things like clean and um, have a high attention to to detail, and make sure you capture those details in your pictures. And like I said, have the have the piece speak for itself, and then that
1: way it just kind of sells itself. You mentioned a target market for your pieces, for the things that you make. And that's great to have that in your sites, the people that you're building for when you're building it. But it's one thing to have that customer in mind, but it's a whole other thing to actually reach that customer. So how have you gone about marketing yourself to the type of customer that you want to buy your pieces? Okay, great question. You're not just creating a business;
0: you're creating a brand. Um, so it's really important to to think about those things for the 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 length of your of your business. So more than just building things and putting pictures of them, it's there's all that back end work that goes into it and creating the you know taking pictures and all of that takes just time and experience to learn and figure out. anybody can anybody can do it. It's just a matter of practicing and repetition and getting good at it. So when I started, um, when I first started getting back into woodworking and established Clever Green as a business, I was okay. You know, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't the best out there. Um, I I was okay. And I was newer into epoxy. Um, I've been doing epoxy for uh, over three years now, I think. And it's, uh, so I listened to one of your episodes with Cold Brew. Uh, Andrew, and he had a really great point about the, the hobbyist versus the professional. And when you're a hobbyist, you have hobbyist pricing, but that hobbyist pricing can also hurt the professionals, the people like us that do it full time. And... It's about getting to that level and having confidence to price your pieces appropriately to where you are actually making money and not just making enough to cover the materials and things like that. So pricing was initially a hard thing for me to figure out, but once I got comfortable and confident in uh, my skill level is when I really started to up my prices to to reflect the work that went into them. and naming naming your price and knowing what took you to build the cost of your materials and the time that you put into it and being confident and putting a number out there and sticking to it and not flexing on that number you know you you need to charge what you're worth can't undersell yourself you know you don't want to be doing this to to be making 10 15 dollars an hour um so i try to get a hourly rate of anywhere from 35 to 45 dollars an hour usually so people have this, this way of looking at things where if it's expensive, then it's worth it. Like they want it more. And I, I started selling stuff a, a lot more often when I marked my prices up higher. So I don't know if it's a, um, a psychology thing where just people want to brag about how much they pay for something Or if they think it's um, if they really think it's worth more because it costs more or, you know, if they look at something that's a similar piece and it costs a lot less, maybe, you know, what's wrong with it, because this one's a lot less, you know, I don't want to get too far into the the psychology of what people pay for things, but. For me, it was really just uh, knowing my worth and being confident in that. I don't do sales. I don't I don't negotiate. I don't handle prices or anything like that. It's the price that I put is what it is. And if it doesn't sell right, you know, right away, it will eventually sell. Everything I've made is always eventually sold. Um, I don't keep pieces for very long. And so... When pricing my pieces and trying to hit that target market, um, I would look at comps, what other people were charging. I get on Etsy and look at other people's websites and things like that and kind of see, you know, look for builds that are similar to mine and see what they're charging and kind of come up with an average. And then what I actually did is I started charging 15% more than the average that I found and priced myself higher than most people. And somehow that seemed to work, especially with with Etsy, I eventually got away from Etsy because Etsy charges way too much, in my opinion. And I started selling on my website only. But Instagram has been a a huge help for me. I work mostly ninety percent on a commission basis. Um, I I don't often have time to just make pieces that I want to make and have a regular stock because I'm usually backordered on things or have a, a list of custom builds from from clients. And again, I think it's just having that level of, of quality in, in your images and in your branding and everything like that. You're trying to appeal to that target market and have your, your prices right to where that, that target market
1: that you're going after has the money to pay those prices. Knowing your worth which is something that you said and something that a lot of people work to get to that point where they feel that what they're putting out there has enough value that they can charge what they should charge for it and also that they can feel confident in their business is a big thing. Mm -hmm. But you've also mentioned self-doubt and self-doubt in pieces you've put out there or designs or ideas. And that is the balance of being in a creative field. Because on one side, you know the time and energy and effort and passion that you have put in. But on the other side, it's not always about you. It's about your audience. You're putting it out there. And hoping that other people have the same view on what you're building as you do, that other people respect what you're doing in the same way that you are. So how do you deal with that balance of the having confidence in your work, but also having self-doubt and overcoming that to continuously push your company forward? Yeah, man, that is just the constant struggle
0: of life, isn't it? Um, that's something that I still struggle with every day, even though, you know, I consider myself to be a professional and do this full time. I still get stressed out. I get anxiety about everything that I do, every move that I make. Every time I put my face on social media or do live videos or stories, I, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. I don't like it. It's there's there's a lot of self-doubt that happens, but I always keep in mind that the only way to grow is just to get out of your comfort zone and just do it. So I, you know, I have a goal of being successful in this, and I know I have to do what it takes to make that happen. And what that takes is just continuing to push yourself. A lot of times where people struggle with that 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 fear and that self-doubt is the fear of failure. You know, none of us want to fail, but you have to keep in mind that failure is how we learn. You don't always learn by, by doing things right and getting it right. The first time you learn by failing, learning what you did wrong, figuring out what you did wrong, fixing it and doing it again. And that can be applied to anything from the physical items to the social side of things and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a constant back and forth struggle of, you know, having that self-doubt and then being confident is just, just overcoming that and just continuing to push, continue to educate yourself. You know, I, I read a lot of self-help books and and things like that, figure out ways that I can not only grow my business, but grow myself as a, as a person to be able to push past those, those fears and the anxiety and the self-doubt that I have so that I can, and my business can be successful because I'm not doing
1: this just for me. I'm doing this for my family. You've mentioned a couple times about how social media has played a role in your company, how Mm -hmm. when you started, there wasn't really social media. And so you didn't have that idea in your head that you could start your own company. And as you decided to start your own company, A lot of your marketing, a lot of your customers, a lot of your business came directly from social media. Mm -hmm. How have you been putting yourself out there on your social media to get sales, to grow your business in the direction that you want it to go?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really been a lot of experimenting and trying things. When I First started my Instagram for Clever Green. Um, I didn't. I, I never really messed with stories very much, and I didn't really put my face out there. And it was just pictures of products. And I'm a firm believer now, after years of learning and figuring it out, that uh, people don't want to just support the business for the products. They want to support the business for the person behind it products. It was very uncomfortable for me at first and still is sometimes like I said to to put my to put my face out there and do, you know, the the selfie stories and the live videos and things like that. But that's what people want to see. Once I started doing that, my business really started taking off. It, when I when I started selling the things that I make not just as a product but the person behind the product people want to support you so social media has definitely been a tool for me and one that took some time to to learn and figure out you know i don't have the biggest following but it's a decent one um you know i grew it over 10,000 followers just this past year um this past 12 months which is crazy to me um when i first went full time when i left my career after 10 years i had on instagram about 1,000 followers and that was, you know, a little over a year ago, and now I'm upwards of 13,000. And that's just been through the learning and the growth and um, really looking at the insights and the back end of your social media, just as you would on your websites, you know, looking at your analytics and things like that, see what's working, see what's not working, checking your hashtags, changing your hashtags, making sure you tag the businesses uh products that you use because if you support them they will usually in turn support you back and you'll get a lot of reshares and things like that you know deciding when it's right to boost some products you know um i don't boost my posts much anymore but in the beginning i did do a lot of that to reach a a bigger audience you know you want to boost some things and spend a little bit of money you know take A marketing budget and starts dropping some money into boosting posts. So you can get more eyes on it. You know, it's just kind of expanding out. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been a a big tool for me. And a lot of my stuff comes from Instagram. A lot of my orders come from Instagram.
1: Let's jump into the real inner workings of your business. And Mm -hmm. when people have a custom business, like you said, about 90% of your sales are custom, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. There's dealing with new clients. There's figuring out when products should go into production. There's figuring out when the job needs to ship out. How do you keep the business running smoothly behind the scenes? What's your process when an order comes in to when it ships out? So usually it starts with uh,
0: someone reaching out to me and with an idea of a product that they like, I I guess I could go back a little bit further than that and, and say that, you know, it does take some time to kind of build your portfolio and you want to have a selection for people to look at and to get ideas from. So, you know, I've kind of created um, a portfolio for myself of the things that I prefer to do and like to do. So if someone sees something that they like and you know they'll send me a message, reach out and like say, you know, hey, I'd like to order something like this. You know, I have a a list of questions and you have to be very basic with people and realize that the people that are asking you to build something for them have no idea what any of it's made out of or how it's done or anything like that. So you want to be as simple as possible. So I don't say, you know, what, uh, what kind of wood, because often the answer I get is, I don't know. I don't know what's what like people know what Walnut is and that's about it. Um, so I, I ask, like, you know, what kind of tones do you want to see in the wood? You want lighter or darker? I asked, do you want epoxy in it or solid wood? If you want epoxy Uh, what color family are you thinking? And then I'll say blue, for example, Uh, because I have like over 200 different colors of pigments for my epoxy. So if someone says, you know, blue, then what I do is I take a picture of all the blues that I have and send them the options available. Or I tell them to, you know, look at my website or Instagram and see if there's anything that jumps out at them and send me that. And so I can get a reference on what color they're thinking. And it just kind of goes from there, um, talking about sizes. And um, as far as like sizes, I've tried to simplify things. Uh, for example, stock sizes. So it's not just you choose a size and I make it. Say, hey, these are the sizes that I offer rather than what size do you want. It simplifies the process. When it comes to furniture, do try to have like standard sizes in mind. So if someone wants a coffee table, for example, you know, A lot of times people don't know what size coffee tables are, how high, how long and wide or whatever. So, you know, I tell them, you know, standard coffee tables, you know, 24 by 48 by 18 inches tall. And they say that sounds good or, you know, or they know specifically what they want. And, you know, we do a custom size. Um, So it's really just a, a conversation and staying on top of that conversation is important um you know i'll try to do a call if i can do it over the phone rather than messaging back and forth which can sometimes take days but i make sure i take notes of everything once it's been decided on then we go into the method of of uh, payment and everything like that so when it comes to to furniture um, if it's local i do somewhere between 50 and 60 percent down and i'll do that either through paypal or Venmo or through my website, whatever works best. Um, I always make sure that I have every payment option available for customers. And then if it's not local, it's paid in full regardless. Just like you would buy something off of Etsy, even if it's a custom piece, people are paying you for that. And then you have your turnaround time to make it and then ship it out to them. So if it's not local, I do payment in full and get all their shipping information and give them my estimated timeline. I I try to keep those timelines loose. That way you're not constricted by like a specific deadline. And if possible, it's just, I I learned this from uh, from Jason, uh, Bourbon Moth actually, which is a lot of pieces I don't put timelines on anymore. I just let people know where they're at in line. So if someone orders something from me, I try to ask when they need to buy. If it's like a special occasion, a lot of times people are buying something as a gift for someone else when it's the smaller pieces, but if it's a furniture piece, a lot of times it's for them. And so I just tell them where they're at on the list and I say, okay, I have uh, you know, five orders ahead of you um, and I'm almost done with three of them. So I will let you know when I get your piece started and then we'll, you know, I'll give you an estimated completion date at that time. That way I'm not being super constricted by a deadline because that can really create a lot of stress and anxiety as trying to meet those deadlines. And it can really alter that creative process. As far as my orders and everything like that, I just created a, a spreadsheet in Google Sheets and I keep track of all my orders and I put due dates on them for my own reference of like goal dates that I want to have them done. And that way I can kind of keep track of myself, you know, keep, keep myself in check on, you know, when I need to really get things done. Part of the hard part about being self-employed is you're your own boss and, you know, my boss is pretty cool. So he gets to do whatever he wants when he wants. uh, But I got to make sure that I get all my work done too. So putting those, those goal dates on, um, on my spreadsheet is important to me. And, you know, I just keep it up on my computer and I look at it every day and look at my deadlines and you know, figure out my day and what I'm working on. Because often I'm working on multiple pieces at
1: the same time. When people have a business like yours that isn't anchored to a local market, you're shipping all over the place. And at the mm-hmm. same time, you're doing custom pieces. It's not like you have a collection of pieces that you know exactly once it's done, how it's going to ship out. So how do you go about shipping things, because that is one of the biggest problems that people forget that they have. They think Mm -hmm. that a furniture company running their own business is all about bringing in sales and then all about building the product. But you forget that you need to ship this. And that is just as big of a hurdle to jump over as the other two, as getting the clients and building. So can you talk a little bit about your shipping and some of the things that you've learned over the years to properly get your pieces from your shop to the client?
0: Shipping was one of the biggest hurdles for me in the beginning because it was terrifying, uh, honestly. like I, I didn't... When I first started, I kept things local because I didn't want to deal with shipping. I didn't know how to do it. It was scary. I didn't. So I just didn't do it. Uh, Eventually, I figured out that I really had to like expand that and and get it figured out. And so what I started with, um, with the smaller pieces, is just using USPS flat rate boxes. So you can get those for free. Um, you go on their website and you can order a bundle of flat rate boxes in different sizes. I figured out what sizes that I needed and I kept stock of those boxes and you create an account online. You can print your label at home. It's flat rate, so you know exactly what it's going to cost to ship it. So that's easy to build into your, into your pricing, um, especially with things like Etsy where now you have to offer free shipping in order to get a priority listing. Um, so that way you can kind of build in that shipping cost into your piece. It's again, going into the, the psychology of sales on things. People are more likely to buy something when it says free shipping, even if it's not technically free, cause you just mark up the price to include the cost of the shipping. It's having that free on there is eye catching for people. So, um, that's where I started with is just uh, USPS shipping. And I think it's a lot of just uh time and experience of Doing the same things over and over again, just like building a product is shipping things. And so once I start getting into some of the bigger things, you know, I had to start looking at um, UPS and FedEx. And then you get into the weight of things. But then the big question is if you have a commission for a table, how do you know the weight of it when it doesn't exist yet? So, you know, the kind of Estimating the the weight and using your uh, community as a resource is absolutely invaluable. So reach out to someone else, another furniture maker, and that, you know, maybe they're doing some very like similar type of things or things that are similar size and, and weight and ask them how much that weighed and or how much did that cost you to ship? You know, you don't have to ask them what they charge for the item and, you know, unless you want to or whatever, but it's kind of like just reach out to other people and use, you know, talk network, talk to your community. You know, I have people that I talk to all the the time and people are generally willing to help you out with that. So that's kind of where it went for, for me. And like, once I kind of like, figured that out and i could guesstimate the weight of a of a coffee table and now i kind of know the the price range that it's going to be in to do that and there's different ways of doing that of um you know doing white glove shipping creating things drop ship so i've done most of those type of things and it just it just kind of varies on where it's going and what the what the piece is as to to how it's going to get shipped, but it, the the biggest thing like learning that part of it is definitely network and reach out to your community and see if someone could give you some some advice on you know what to, how they did it and how much it cost them and how much their piece weighed and it'll give you a, a better idea on how to quote that shipping. And you know once you get the piece made, just make sure you have a, enough of a allowance in your price that you're not gonna you know you're not gonna dig yourself a
1: hole by shipping it. Leaning on your community and talking with people and understanding what other people are doing is one of the greatest ways to bring your business forward, to push it to where you want it to go. Mm -hmm. You started in this industry working for other people, seeing how other furniture businesses were being run and you went away from that, but then you came back to it and you had that background to start your own company. There are people out there who have never worked in the furniture industry, but who want to have their own furniture company and they want to make something for themselves like you have. And there's also people out there who have their own furniture companies who have been doing this and running their own business. And it could be going well, but it's not going as well as they want it to be. They're not feeling that they are reaching the success that they should be having. So from your experience, for people listening, what's some advice that you could share that you've learned running your business that people could use in their own? First of all, if someone wanted to start
0: a furniture business and their goal is to to do it full time and have it have it pay the bills, you know, have it um, have it pay the mortgage, is you you do have to treat it like a business. It's it's time to move on from being a hobbyist to being a professional. And even if you don't feel like a professional, you have to tell yourself that you are, because that's it, it's it's a mindset thing. You know, you have to treat it as more than just a hobby. It takes self-discipline to get out in the shop every day and to, to keep making, creating, keep expanding, keep learning, keep growing, filling yourself with as much knowledge and uh, practical experience as possible. And not just, like I said, on just the products themselves, but on the back end of it as well learning how to how to market yourself because woodworking isn't a big money maker thing unless you're into content and that's like a whole another road that we can go down on another podcast but as far as physical items most likely you're not going to be able to afford to pay a business or someone else to market your things for you and build your website. So there's a lot out there that you can do yourself by just simply watching YouTube videos, learn how to create your own template built website, learn how to use SEO and search engines and how to make people find you learn about your, your local market and your areas and your target market and how to market to those. Learn how to use your cell phone to take better photography pictures. Don't just take a picture and post it. Take you know a few extra minutes and crop it and edit it and adjust the lighting, and try to get a similar look across the board. And because you're you know you're creating a brand, you're not just taking a picture of something that you made. You're adding to your portfolio for your brand. Try to um, try to get out of your own way. You know, it's um, like I said before, the, the anxiety and the, the self-doubt is it's, it's real, Um, but just step over that fear of failure and fail and then get up and do it again. And that's, that's really the only way to learn. It's you're not, you're not alone on any of this. Everybody out there, you know, they're, they're not alone. There's a whole community of people out there that will, um, that know what you're, what you're going through and what the the struggles are. And they're there to help you learn. Just, you know, just start chatting with people, strike up conversation, um, ask them how to do things, um, you know, ask for support. And a lot of times people are going to give that to you and share their knowledge. And, um, you know, I've had people, you know, like yourself, and like I said, cold brew earlier, uh, Zach from double K, uh, Woodworks Mahoney, um, Uh, my buddy Derek from Northwest pole company, just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a community and we want to build this community together and bring these, you know, the handmade items and the trades back and, you know, get people steer people away from buying the store-bought furniture. That's going to fall apart after a year or two, you know, we can work together to, to build this, this community up and, and uh, you know, make a comeback with handmade items. So.
1: That all makes sense to me. And, I hear what you're saying and I appreciate you sharing those insights and, and all the knowledge that you've shared throughout this entire episode. And I just want to thank you for your time and for sitting down with me and sharing your story and talking about how you started your business and how you've continued to run it into the successful company that it is today. So thank you very much. And I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate this, man, and appreciate you, Ethan. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com.